Hey everyone, this is Fernando from the Fernando Mostrangelo Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Ariel Azulin Lishin of Slash Objects and the designer that made it all the way to the finale on Ellen's Next Great Designer. She's had an incredible career so far, from studying architecture at Harvard to setting up her first booth at Sight Unseen in 2016, all the way to the main stage at Ellen's. She's one to watch and she's only getting started. I'm super excited to have her on the show. Here we go, let's jump in. I'm just going to say this out front. It's, it's a couple of weeks after the show's already launched. Uh, so the results are out. And so hopefully it's not a spoiler for anyone listening to this. But I want to get uh, a bit of your origin story so that people can understand your ambition of going to a place like Harvard, why your mom seems to have been a big influence in your life in terms of this stuff. So yeah, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in design. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely... Grew up with immigrant parents and, you know, typical tiger mom whose dream is for their child to go to Harvard. So I guess I fulfilled <laughs> that in, in some ways. And I also grew up with a lot of art and design because my mom is a, an architect and my grandmother, who I talked a little bit about on the show, um, was a painter kind of in her spirit, but really worked as a seamstress. And my grandfather had a shoe factory. So I come from, you know, definitely creative kind of makers on my mom's side and on my dad's side as well he grew up in Morocco and his family had a jewelry business in Morocco so they were also doing kind of uh, craft and working with artisans so I, I know that that definitely has mm -hmm. you know contributed to to where I am today when did they immigrate to the United States what what, what year to contextualize a little my parents came in 1978 I believe. Oh, so they came in the 70s. Yeah. my They were about like 25 at the time and kind of didn't really know where to start their family and came to America. Oh, because they, they were married before they, they immigrated to the United States. Yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. They were, yeah, they were, they had been living in Morocco actually for a year before, but they had originally met in Switzerland. My parents both went to college in Switzerland, which was like something that I guess a lot of people did from Morocco. And they met there, even though my mom was actually born in Denmark. And so where did they move to uh, in the US? Where did you guys first arrive? Originally, my parents, actually, they came to New York. My dad had a cousin in the city. They, they showed up with their like suitcases. And my dad's cousin was kind of like, I have a studio apartment, you can't stay here. <laughs> so my dad had a different cousin that was like living in Philly. And so my parents went to Philadelphia. And they were like, Oh, this is cute. Maybe we'll like learn English here. And <laughs> so they they originally didn't necessarily know that they were going to stay for so long. But they ended up getting a little like one bedroom apartment and my dad started taking English classes and my mom already knew a little bit of English and got like a job as a dog worker and my mom ended up doing her master's at Penn in architecture mm. and she she loves to like talk about how she just went and talked to the dean and like got in because <laughs> it was the 70s oh without like any requirements she just charmed them into letting her into the department <laughs> Well, she had like an undergraduate degree from this school in Switzerland in interior okay. architecture. And so I guess that that impressed the dean. And then she, she did her master's there. 
So that was always kind of in the back of my mind, but I never wanted to be an architect. I just, but I, I never wanted to be an architect, but I always wanted to do something in design or the arts. Why not architecture? I was definitely always told also from like a young age that it's a very difficult profession and it's kind of thankless. And, mm-hmm. you know, you definitely can make it, but a lot of the work is just pretty grueling. So I never really necessarily kind of went into it thinking that I was going like to just do that with my life. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I always wanted to work on a lot of different types of projects. So because also my undergrad, I studied, I studied like philosophy, critical theory, visual media. So it was like a mix of kind of a few different disciplines. And the idea was that I would kind of hone my design skills and maybe it would be like through technology or through fabrication. But I like the ability to sort of, you know, cross between different mediums and scales. I could definitely see that with your practice now when you have, you've <laughs> since the beginning, you've always had a lot of different brands, you know, different slash objects, slash projects, slash. And so you always had a variety. I mean, I guess that speaks to this interest, a wider interest in, in, in a variety of things. So, all right, you, you get to Harvard. How's that experience? You know, it was super challenging. It was probably the most difficult four years of my life. It's a really long degree program and it's obviously incredibly competitive mm-hmm. and everybody there is just doing their best and like an overachiever. So I think it's just hard to constantly be faced with that. But ultimately it taught me so much about resilience mm-hmm. because no matter what, you just have to like get up and keep going. And it also taught me like, what exhaustion feels like and and <laughs> how to work through that because you're like never going to be more exhausted than it was it that you found your peers to be that rigorous and then you felt like you just needed to kind of keep up with that or was it the actual work that you that was being demanded of you guys or a combination of both maybe I think it's a combination of both. Like the level of work is just extremely high because the professors are, you know, demanding that and there's like a level of respect to the work that's given there, but at the same time, you know, everybody is trying to prove themselves. So everybody is bringing their absolute best to the table mm-hmm. and that really fuels you more than anything. Did you feel that you were conceptually ready? You know, it, it's funny because it's it's a real mix of people that come to the program. And I would say the large majority of the students actually have an undergrad in architecture. So mm. I came from a non-architecture background and I feel like I had more of a basis in conceptual thinking, like analytical thinking mm. from studying philosophy and critical theory. And so that kind of like allowed me to think in a different way than a lot of these other students that came already trained to mm-hmm. an extent compared to my peers. I feel like I was definitely an outlier because I wasn't trying to sort of like be molded in the same way. I was trying to like define my identity and understand what I wanted to do with this degree and and also like learn as many skills as I could. So I spent a lot of the time focusing on like model making and telling conceptual stories through these tactile kind of artifacts of what a project means. And that's, I think, ultimately what led me into furniture design, because it's like all about the materials, the tools, the processes, and the concept that makes it, you know, a piece of of art or something spatial. Mm -hmm. You go through Harvard, it's intense, you do your graduation uh, thesis project, I imagine, which is probably an intense endeavor. 
you present that and how did that go? And then how does your transition out of school? Something like major happened while I was in grad school, which was that I got into this program in Japan that they had just started in my mm -hmm. third year. And I was like one of 12 students that got to study for a semester under Toyo Ito in Tokyo. He's like one of the most famous Japanese architects. You know, I ended up spending the semester there studying, but then extending my stay to work for another really amazing architect, Kengo Kuma. And just being, I think, awoken to the way in which design is made in a different context in a different country with different values that like really resonated with me and so when I came back to Boston and to do my thesis the next year I had like a, almost a new sense of what I wanted the work to be and that was much more closely tied to architecture as art mm. and like intervention in space as really the power of art and design. So I, I actually ended up forming my thesis around a project that Gordon Matta Clark did oh, cool. in the 70s. Yeah. He's an so artist. I, yeah, He's a real yeah. artist. But he, to, 100%. He's totally an artist. But his he actually studied architecture. And his work is like all about space, you know, the built environment form, like he, he almost like inverts that by like carving into, you know, buildings uh, and for things people like that. who don't know who Gordon Mara Clark is, he's a famous artist who basically his most popular works are he would cut slivers or holes into architecture, into buildings and create these strange illusions almost, but they were these sort of temporary installation work. They're totally, because cool. a lot of the buildings were basically going to be torn down. It was right. like the 60s and 70s, the buildings were dilapidated and he was basically like claiming them as art site for, for experience and like what that meant. So I was super inspired by his work, how you relate to land, how you relate to the city. Because I, to me, like design is really about causing that internal kind of reflection. All of my pieces, I really, I want them to have powerful impact on a space. They aren't the type of pieces that like are meant to disappear. They're meant to draw you in. They're meant to like have you revolve around them. I, I want there to be like this sense of intrigue that you want to get close to the piece. You want to understand like what material starts where and there's always that kind of push-pull. You finish your graduate thesis and so what do you do? Like are you faced with the question of staying in Boston or moving or did you always have your eyes set on New York and you knew and, and or, or what was your path after that? I was kind of exhausted from school and I, I wanted to take a minute to like think about, you know, what do I want to do next? You know, I'd always been freelancing essentially as like a graphic designer or web designer prior to going to architecture school. So I thought like, I'll just freelance for a little while and see what I want to do next. Can we contextualize this a little with your age? I was 29. 29. Time, yeah. Okay. So you were really finishing your education at 29 and then entering the world at that. Okay. These projects that you were getting, was that from the network you had created uh, at Harvard or at NYU? I would say that it was largely based on like the Harvard network and students and professors that, that needed an extra set of hands. I mean, I came back to New York and I had no network that was related to design because I had studied something else and my friends were neither clients nor peers. So I 100% needed to rely on any sort of network that I created at school. And at the same time, I wasn't the traditional candidate and I was an outlier. So I was trying to figure out like what what's going to be my path and how am I going to make it? Okay, so... 
29, feeling things out, getting some gigs, slash objects. Yeah. I mean, really, the, the reason I started slash objects was because I, after like two years or so of working on a whole wide range of projects, I didn't feel like there was a strong kind of identity to the work. And I was trying to attract better clients. And so I thought, well, if I create a project that I brand and I package and I design all of the you know products and all of the furniture and I art direct the photography and I make a beautiful display of it, you know, that will really show a holistic project. And ultimately I I thought it would attract better clients. And kind of what ended up happening is that it took on an entire life of its own. So what what was slash objects right at the beginning there? What what, what were, were there objects? There were objects. So, <laughs> you know, I had heard about Sight Unseen, which was kind of novel to me coming from architecture world, but I saw people posting about it. I thought like, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. I want to do that. Like maybe I can have a booth. And I gave myself a deadline and I applied and I had this idea about using recycled rubber, which I had discovered because I was working on an architecture project and I was sourcing materials for the gym, a gym flooring material. So I saved money for my booth and I thought it was going to be like a fun side thing. But I think that my parents were kind of like, what? They didn't fully understand, you know, what it was that I was trying to do. And and I don't think they necessarily like saw this whole community of American designers that was totally burgeoning at that time. And I found that super inspiring. I was like, I want to be a part of that. I see all these people taking like making into their own hands, into their own businesses and I felt like that was something I could really tap into. Did you feel like furniture design came easy to you, like to create that collection? You know, the first booth, I really originally started making these products and I realized like a booth is much bigger than I thought it was. So I, I, I was like, I, got, I have to make bigger pieces to yeah. fill this booth and make something substantial. And that's why I started working with marble because, you know, like I, I live in Greenpoint. My, my, at the time I didn't have a studio. So I was just kind of exploring the neighborhood and there are a ton of marble yards mm. really close by. So it felt very accessible, even though it's something that actually is almost inherently inaccessible. So the combination of like living in close proximity to these marble yards and needing to make bigger pieces led me to start playing around with marble and, ha you know, having an architecture training, it makes it pretty easy to communicate with fabricators on how to essentially create the pieces to be assembled for furniture. What was the kind of inspiration for the work that early on? I'm always fascinated by geometry. So I think that that was very much a driver in a lot of those pieces, understanding like how can you transform a piece of stone into something that feels more like a geometric prism and play with like reflection of certain materials to extend the texture of another material. Mm -hmm. Or with the rubber, I was really trying to understand like how it can work from small scale to larger scale and also understand its functional properties. So it was just like a very energetic time of experimentation for me. And so how did Sight Unseen 2016 go? It went super well. It went differently than I had anticipated. I think ultimately what I had learned was like, I really like making these things and it's resonating with people. People wanted to buy pieces. People wanted to order more. And so I felt like, oh, okay, I could start a business around this and I could start to sell these pieces. And you did. And that's what I did. <laughs> so 
you started selling to interior designers. You obviously, you got a lot of press also right there at the beginning, which you, I don't know if you were prepared for or not, but that was something that kind of came your way. Yeah. I mean, I think I learned early on the press and the public were interested in people using materials that aren't necessarily always used and also materials that have some kind of way of helping the earth or moving sustainability forward. So I absolutely feel like tapped into something that then, you know, got the press and got the clients. And I think that's largely probably why I continued with it. So you leaned into that. Maybe it wasn't something that you had originally thought this could be part of the thesis of my work, but... Uh, no, I actually thought the thesis of my work was going to be and still largely is about using recycled materials and transforming them and making them seem beautiful and desirable simply through design. Cool. So after this point, maybe, you know, after 2016 and 17 starts to roll around, what is, what is your life in studio looking like at that point? So I, you know, in 2016, I had just moved into a new apartment that I thought maybe I can work out of it, but I was starting to like pour concrete and it was just not feasible. So I rented a, a tiny desk in a studio that's in the same building I'm in now. I couldn't really make a huge mess. So like at night I would be like pouring cement under my desk and like in the morning, like trying to clean it all up. And eventually after a few months, a friend of mine had another space on another floor in the building and said like, Hey, you know, we want to rent out like a little corner of the office. Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, that seems like way better than my current situation. So what was the next big thing that started to sort of lead you to where maybe you stopped working with your clients and, and, and started really focusing more on Slash? You know, I realized that I wanted to make a collection that was going to be, you know, essentially it was the start of the Coexist collection. And I had this concept. I would say I actually tested it out a bit at In Good Company at your show when I yeah. created the askew table and the triangle standing mirror. So I was just like really passionate about building more of these pieces and finding a way to bring them to life. So uh, that's when I made those pieces for your show. I had a booth at ICFF. That year I won best of NYC by design for that collection. And I think that really like set me off into this kind of world of cool. high-end furniture. At this point, you don't have a PR team. You're obviously investing in your pieces in the booth, which is pretty, those are big expenses, by the way. And then kind of doing it all on your own. I was really hustling. I still am hustling. Basically just trying to like have enough client work to be able to support this side of the business until it can stand on its own two legs. When do you start that transition to being just slash? And then also let's talk a little bit about your entering into doing a lot of the uh, accessories that you started to build. Like that, that seemed mm -hmm. to be a pretty relevant part of your practice as well. Yeah, I mean, there was a moment where one of my clients wanted me to come full time and work with them. So that was, I think, a turning point because I had to make like this strong decision to go in one direction and focus more on the furniture and really make the business thrive. So I've always been kind of doing the accessories and the furniture in tandem because I do feel like there is a clientele for each. 
And so many clients have bought the tablewares and thank me for making them and, and for making affordable pieces. So to me, that's sort of my way of being able to create design pieces that people can buy. Right. What year are we at here, basically? In your, in your... We're like, like 2018 or so. About 2018. Do you feel like there's another moment that is kind of like an aha moment where things started to click in? Yeah, I'm in 2019, I was awarded the American Design Honors by Wanted Design and Bernhardt Design, which is like the first award I ever have received that I didn't apply for. And I, I felt like that meant I was having an impact and people were recognizing that. And I think that that probably had a direct relationship to me being invited to Ellen's next great designer. So you're carrying on, starting to sell work. You get, you obviously got getting a lot of good press. And then you get the, you get the email or the phone call. I think it was an email. I thought it was spam at first. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to get this, but I'm just going to keep saying yes until they say no essentially that was like my strategy and it just kept going it was like we need a casting video we want an hour-long casting call we want a studio tour we want to see you making something so i think i was, was like your, really what, yeah what was your gut were you like this is exciting were you like i think you know exposure on television could be awesome what, what? i was definitely like oh that would be really cool to be on tv but mainly it would be really cool to make new work you know have like an opportunity to kind of get outside of myself and outside of my current patterns so that was like really attractive to me i was like oh i'm gonna get like a budget and be able to make new stuff like dream come true you really flexed your muscles with this because although there are remnants of you and all the uh, remnants of your old work or past work in this new work, it definitely felt like you started to make a departure. Like I'm thinking immediately of the chandelier, not something that we've seen from you before. But what was consistent was that your, your touch, your hand, your design language was coming through and everything. I mean, it was basically an explosion of new work. Yeah, I, I really kind of went into it thinking like, I'm just going to explore ideas that I've had that I couldn't realize up until now. And I also was like fully just trying to compete against myself. I was like, hey, you made that last week. What are you going to make this week? Like, how are you going to surprise the judges and surprise yourself? And I think that's definitely where the light came from. I was like, they're never going to expect that I'm going to break something like <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> you made me eat my words on challenge one. Because you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it showed that if you can do something at that level, right? And it was like also that brass detail that made it and, and the fusion between the three materials was so precise that it really, it just proves that even though something has been done, it, if done so beautifully, it can really move you. For me, that challenge was about the purity of the materials and highlighting that and bringing them together super precisely. And I think that that's something I didn't even realize that that's something that I do. And I, I almost became aware of it because my producer, Amy, was like asking me, how important is it that the rock connect to the slab so precisely? And when she was asking me that, I had no idea that there was somebody else that was making a similar piece. And to me, I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of a given. Like, of course, we're going to make it as precise as we can. We're going to carve it like the the wood so that it matches the profile of the rock you know I'm making a tracing of this brass piece like everything was sort of second nature to me to make it fit that way 
and then having that realization that that's where my mind goes, it was kind of an awakening. Right. What we started to recognize in your work really quickly was that there's always like two or three elements going on. Is that a design principle of yours or is that just something that naturally occurs? Well, I do think that like three of something, it's like the antithesis of symmetry where you have this extra element that helps like balance everything out. So I do like to think of like two parts that get sort of like shaken up by this third element. It's not necessarily a rule, but I think that when I'm designing something, I want there to be this like purity, this simplicity. So I'll try and pare everything down to what are the functional materials needed to create this and how can I do that by combining no more than three things, ideally? So I, I think that's just sort of how it manifests. And I loved that art challenge. I thought that that was an amazing prompt to create a piece because I do feel like design responds so well to art and vice versa. I really felt like I resonated with that painting and I wanted to create a piece that instills in you this sense of calm, this mm -hmm. peacefulness that you get when you're experiencing an artwork. I have to say, when I first saw the chandelier, I was like, no way this is done in four days. Because that brass work uh, on the top that holds the whole thing together, I was like, that is just so well done. I was just impressed really with the, with the level of craftsmanship that you were able to achieve. And you really managed to get the quality really high on that. I had a bit more of a complex piece in mind. So I ended up simplifying it a lot. And I remember being really worried that it was not, you know, when you're making something, I don't know, I get really like hard on myself and I'm just like, oh, why did I design something too complicated? This is like a mistake. I don't really have it under control. And then of course, in retrospect, you're like, all right, that was actually the best version of the piece mm -hmm. because it needed to be simplified anyway. And the way we did the canopy was like really... I think super smart and, and it actually is made out of essentially like rectangular extruded brass tube. So it's just three pieces essentially welded together and grinded down. I think that it's, it's not only like my level of detail, but I definitely think, you know, the fabricators I work with, Mike and Nick from W&P Studio have just a really high level of resolution and are able to like resolve these things really quickly and beautifully. Real talk here. Did you actually break the piece and then use those broken pieces or? For sure. No, that, actually. It was Hollywood magic. I... It was a miracle because <laughs> we were already behind schedule. We hadn't cast it soon enough. We were supposed to have broken it like earlier, I think first thing in the morning. And we were still casting it by the afternoon and it was only like ready to break by very close to the end of the day. And that was just taking a really long time to figure out. Like I didn't want to basically I mean, ruin it. Because a part of me was like, this has got to be some Hollywood magic and going on here, but it turned out it great. Here. So then we get to the outdoor challenge, which I thought those pieces were awesome. Like you designed it, I mean, with the kids in mind, but you're, you, what was your thinking really behind those pieces? You know, to me, the this is a design competition and it, you know, the, the brief, like continuously said high end design pieces. So I thought, you know, of course we should be innovating here on what it means to create furniture for children. And I wanted to create, you know, beautiful contemporary 
furniture pieces that feel playful and are accessible to, you know, people of all ages. And so I really came at it from like a design perspective. I was thinking like Scandinavian, you know, children's furniture that's like painted in beautiful, elegant, but playful colors. That challenge to me felt a little bit outside. And I felt like though your work stayed kind of true to itself throughout, you know? I mean... To me, I, you know, I was really thinking like, well, if I were to design a slash object furniture piece for a kid, what would it look like? And I do think that's like what it would look like. But by, by challenge four, you're feeling pretty confident. And then, you know, obviously we get into the multi-function piece, which kind of threw you off a bit. Yeah. I mean, I love that piece. I went into that, you know, I think I went into that judging more confident about that piece than any of the other pieces. Really? Like, I was like, this piece is awesome. Like I was out of all the pieces, I thought this is the one I feel the most confident about. Why did you love that piece so much? So I knew that it had some flaws, but as a multifunctional piece, I definitely took it up a notch. I think I I was thinking about it doesn't necessarily go in the same type of home as some of the other pieces, but it could have, you know, a retail life experience, or it could be in a hotel. And we were supposed to blacken the steel so that it would basically disappear. But we really ran out of time, it wasn't going to have enough time to dry. And like, that was, I was kind of debating, like, is it worse, if it doesn't dry, and it shows up, you know, all mangled? Or should I leave it raw? And I kind of thought it looked cool, to be honest. I was like, this is a cool new thing. Maybe people are into it. It felt unresolved in terms of its elegance or something like that, mm-hmm. right? It, it was almost like a, a piece that still felt like it needed, you know, a couple more iterations to really hit it. I think a lot of that too is partially because like most of my material was destroyed in the process of seeing seeing it. Which, like, I don't know if you guys were told that, or I know I... No, I we were not. We were not. Yeah, so I feel like that also didn't really... Other people maybe got away with certain things like that, but I did not because you guys expected more from me. Well, you know, that's what I keep hearing from a lot of contestants. They felt like uh, with certain contestants, we were, I don't know, we had different criteria, let's say. And I feel like that's starting to become something that I've heard across the board, that it, it, it didn't feel like we had consistency in the way that we were looking at things. I'm trying to figure out why that is. You know, is it because objects are so, they're intimate things. And so when we're experiencing them, it, it might be difficult across the board to have strict criteria for everything. You mm-hmm. know, I think... One has to take into consideration which designer is making it, what it signifies, what it could potentially be like. Are there nuggets of things that are interesting that spark curiosity versus is it fabricated well? Is it, is it, is it that, you know, like. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really sure. Maybe it would have been nice to have criteria that you guys all, that was more transparent between. Yes. The cast and and the judges and so that everybody could kind of understand like what was being judged against. Right. What and why. And I, I was sort of like, wow, I got four kind of top threes under my belt, like out of five, like I'm golden. And then <laughs> <laughs> and then like week five, it was like, no, you're actually like you might not even make it. 
When you you were the first to be announced that you're going to the finale, there's a sense of relief in you. Like what 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 are you thinking? Because one thing is cool, you got in, but now you're gonna have this whole other challenge in front of you. You know, I it was it was exactly that. It was like both a sense of relief and also this like daunting realization that I'd have to now being exhausted and also coming from sort of like a down position, compete and make a whole collection in these circumstances that are like still mysterious to me and definitely out of my comfort zone. And before we we announced that Mark would be going to the finale with you, who are you thinking? Well, I definitely thought it was going to be me and Mark. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kind of had thought that for a while because I think he and I both had those like kind of high highs and to me, it only made sense that like that was what was going to get you into the finals for this competition. I could just like sense it from the judging. I think in terms of the judging, you know, it wasn't always necessarily that clear when a piece didn't meet the expectations or the height of another piece. Mm -hmm. And that can cause confusion because it appears like, well, you know, these all of these people got such a good review. Why? Are they going home at this moment? I think also you guys weren't able to hear our deliberations right after we had seen everyone's work. So I think, yeah, ultimately I did feel that you and Mark were the right candidates to go against each other in the finale. You guys had both, like you said, highs and not lows, but you know, you had your moments where, you know, you were nervous that you wouldn't make it. But <laughs> so you're in the finale, you're in LA. It's tough. You don't have your <sighs> fabricators. You don't have Mike. You don't have, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. What are you thinking? Were you like preparing to be in the finale and being like, I need to think of what I'm going to do? You know, I should have been, but I, I almost felt like that would, because I'm like weirdly superstitious. So, I, I was like, I don't want to like get ahead of myself and prepare and then be disappointed. And so instead, I started kind of tossing ideas around. And I, I thought it was going to be like a two piece collection, not a three to four piece collection. So I was preparing like two pieces. I was like, okay, what, what are two things that could go nicely together? So I was definitely thrown for a loop with the third to fourth piece. So take us through a little bit about this, the preparing for the finale. What are you feeling? Because some of it, I want to know if it was real or if this was just kind of, you know, also being amplified a little bit by the show. I was super nervous. And okay. I also really feel like I was thrown in with like, you know, way less ability to meet the challenge based on the environment and my skill set. Like, I do not know oh what I'm going to do here because I have no vendors. And they didn't, you know, I, I kind of expected like that there would be a full shop, like a, a huge hangar with like metal and stone and all of the trades. But there wasn't. And if we had been able to prepare, I would have, you know, gotten all my contacts in L.A. to give me their vendors and like just set myself up for success. I mean, at the end, you can't tell by the quality of the work and the way it turned out. It felt like, you know, <laughs> they were all executed to perfection. I, you know, I, I thought my pieces looked amazing. I was like, I can't believe I pulled this off. and. I had such a good review with you guys that I was like, wow, I have a chance. Like I, I really didn't feel like I, I was going to win until after the review when I thought maybe I pulled this off. 
I mean, you know, looking across at all the works that you've done for the show, there's 10 works or a, a lot. There was a lot of pieces. You're, yeah. you, you've created a whole new body of work and you've really now identified yourself with the language that came out in your final collection. You know what I mean? Like that now really feels like a mature, definitive designer. When you use a natural material the way you do, the way that you contrast that with very refined, you know, so you can, so you have that contrast that I love, right? And then, of course, your materials were so beautiful and uh, unto themselves that kind of mashed together. You're, you're, you kind of know you're hitting on a successful thing. Like you are already a great designer, you know. And so I'm saying that to you now on the podcast and out loud, just so that people can understand a little bit about what was going on, because it was a very emotional uh, experience to vote on the finale because it's big for your careers. And honestly, I think you both have reaped the benefits of the exposure. And you got to show so much work and so much of who you are that ultimately at the end, your business is going to thrive. And it already probably, you're already probably seeing signs of that from the results. But I know it's an emotional moment for you. And I remember I came up to you later and I hugged you and you said, you know, what happened or why wasn't it me or something? And, and I was just like, oh, you hit me in the heart. And I was like, oh, shit. You know, it was a tough moment. Yeah, I think it was a super tough moment. You know, like to me, I didn't ever want to sort of let myself believe that I was going to win for that disappointment. And then I felt like I let it get into my mind. And then I, it, it has been super disappointing and sometimes like hard to reconcile with. To me, I, I'm, what I'm trying to sort of frame it as like I proved to myself that, you know, outside of my comfort zone, I can create pieces that are as refined. Like actually, my biggest fear was to not be able to bring the quality that I bring otherwise because I'm outside of my comfort zone working with new people. But what it made me realize is that actually all of those details are things that I do bring to the fabricators. And that is what makes everything to come together so cleanly. So in a way, it was reassuring that no matter where it is around the world, it, it will still feel like my work. And I loved your feedback and critique on the show. I feel like it brought a level of honesty that the show really needed. And, you know, as designers, like, especially in my design education, we got really harsh, brutal critiques. So I think that that's part of making work and learning from it. So I appreciate yeah. you saying that. Yeah, I wanted to honor you guys and, and try to be valuable, you know, in the feedback. And part of why I also doing this podcast is so that we can just look at things a little bit more deeply than we do on the show. And talk about yeah. our feelings. And so what can we expect from you now? Are you going to be putting like some of the collection pieces into your roster of offering? I'm also working on the Rift collection. I think a lot of people actually reached out about that collection as well. I'm, I'm definitely planning on doing a fair in the fall, or maybe I'm going to self-produce an exhibit, which I think is maybe a new kind of way to go where it, it, I think that people don't really necessarily want to go to like these big convention centers anymore. And I, d I definitely don't want to stand in a booth. So instead, maybe it's about creating an experience. And so the pieces can really have the space to breathe and the context for people to see them in, in a different way. And, and really just like focus on myself, you know, as an artist and bringing pieces to life from that perspective as opposed to necessarily always kind of as a, a business. I think you have a, 
you know, you have a wide variety of options, I feel like, especially now that you have launched so many pieces through the show, you know? Yeah, I think for me, like my goal was really to show that I am capable of so many different things, like throw a challenge at me, I can meet it. You know, that was really what I wanted to demonstrate. And what my hope is that, you know, other brands or manufacturers or collaborators will kind of come out of that and seek to work with me because mm -hmm. I do love working with other people in new ways. And I, I think that that would lead to like a whole new trajectory. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Subscribe, follow, like, write a review. It really does help, honestly. If you're uh, looking for more content, get on Instagram. You can find us there. You can find us on YouTube at FMS Presents. We're kind of everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, we'll be there. All right, talk to you soon.